not my home it's just chicago <laughs> goodness gracious that's uh the blues brothers from uh was it briefcase full of blues is that what it was 1978 before the movie came out and uh yeah chicago kind of was put on the map in the late 70s and into the 80s with a lot of the john john hughes movies but uh i don't know what happened chicago's not the same town that it once was and uh that's what we talk about here on this podcast my guest today matt rosenberg former cab driver who's become a writer and an author. He has a new book out. It's called What's Next Chicago? Notes of a Pissed-Off Native Son. And we get into talking about just the aspects of the decaying of a town, though a once great town like Chicago. I mean, or Chicago, I should say. <laughs> like what ended up happening with Chicago? I mean, it was a town that, it was the jewel of the Midwest. And now, except for maybe hearing about the Chicago Cubs winning the World Series a couple of years ago. Basically, any story coming out of Chicago is negative. And it's about, oh, 4th of July party, five dead, 23 injured and gunshots. And this and that, it's just, it starts to pile up. So I got to talk to Matt Rosenberg today about not only the violent crime that has ex certainly experienced an uptick over time. You have the failing court system. You have the failing schools. Uh, the finances have been just rotten for a long time. And kind of the, the stronghold that we've been hearing about when you talk about this Chicago-style politics from the dailies all the way up to Barack Obama. So we get into all that here on this podcast. I hope you enjoy it. This is the free version of the Check Your Brain podcast. If you're interested in more content, well, I have the free versions. You could just go through it on Check Your Brain and it's uh, available on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Podbean, wherever you get your finer podcasts, it is available. But if you like my content a little bit more, and maybe you want to hear this interview a little sooner than when I posted it for free, it's on Patreon. So for five bucks a month, you get four podcasts per week and get a chance to hear a little bit more of my ranting and raving about various subjects like Chicago or the Chicago Bulls. I could talk about the glory days of my infatuation with that last dance documentary from <laughs> from ESPN on Michael Jordan. So some are lighthearted, some are pretty heavy episodes. So I do four podcasts that are, are released a week, and then I throw in a couple other goodies throughout the week as well. $5 a month. It really is the cost of an old style, if you ask me. If you go to Chicago, you go to any bar, buy an old style. It's probably $7. So it's actually $2 less than that beer. My podcast, a month's worth of my podcast is $2 less than an old style. <laughs> so hope you enjoy this podcast. And if you do want to subscribe, uh, yeah, patreon.com slash Tony Mazur, T-O-N-Y-M-A-Z-U-R. Just search for my name or check your brain and subscribe to the free podcast if you do so as well. Without further ado, let's talk to Matt Rosenberg and let's talk a little more about Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. Chicago, Chicago, I will show This is Tony Mazur here in Akron, Ohio. And uh, yeah, we're going to take a drive at about uh, six and a half, maybe seven hours. Then you have a time change somewhere in Indiana. We're going to go over to Chicago or Chicago, I should say. Because uh, as my mother, who is actually from, she grew up in Joliet, 
And uh, my, my whole family in, uh, you know, uh, Bolingbrook and all those other places. I'm well aware of the Chicagoland area, and that's the topic we're talking about today with Matt Rosenberg. And you have a new book that's called What's Next Chicago? Notes of a Pissed-Off Native Son. I love that title. Yeah, thank you. Well, I'm feeling it. <laughs> and I've been back here since September 10th. I came back last year, of course, to do field work for the book, and I lived here for 30 years. And uh, yeah, there's things going on that need some ventilation and uh, some correction. Yeah, and you know, when you talk about what's next in for Chicago, a, a town that it's really interesting because it's always had that charm of being a the knowing of it's corrupt, whether it's the police force is corrupt, the politicians are corrupt, uh, you know, you know, whatever the case. But it was always had that Midwestern charm of had big city life, but it still had the Midwestern feel. And it just seems that in the last as an outsider to me, Chicago is just it's become such a negative. And anytime you talk about Chicago nowadays, it's usually some negative of you know, three dead at a 4th of July uh, barbecue with uh, 25 injured from a gunshot. And you go, so then anytime anyone brings up Chicago, it's always, well, what negative story is this? There's really not a lot of positives that we're hearing about. And, and I know you cover a lot of this in the book. Yes, and I experienced the duality of the place every time I come back. Um, the headlines are horrible. The reality on the ground is horrible. And not just regarding crime, also regarding broken public schools, a broken court system, uh, city finances in a deep mess, and a city politics and racial rhetoric that is deeply, deeply harmful and interwoven into our problems. And yes, I have not even mentioned corruption or rigged rules of governance, which must also be mentioned. But with all of that, Tony, there's still greatness wrapped into the DNA of this place. And even, uh, you know, on this trip here in the fall of 2021, I mean, there's there's a lot to recommend the place if, if it could only get its act together. Um, the architecture, the neighborhoods, uh, the neighborhood downtowns, at least in some of the neighborhoods, are wonderful. The people, the ones who are not making negative headlines, are wonderful people. And they are very Midwestern. They're open. They're friendly. They're genuine. They're interested in you. Um, you know, the culture here, the jazz, the blues, um, you know, the theater, the writers that have come out of this place. And then, of course, you've got the sheer, you know, brain power of this place and, and you know, the University of Chicago and Loyola and DePaul, uh, Northwestern University. So there's there's been an awful lot of innovation here. And that's actually something the city badly needs now in its governance is and in its politics is innovation because we're losing to Sunbelt cities, Southern cities, and other places that know what people want and know what businesses want. Um, so that's kind of huge to me. It's kind of, it really is kind of the story of the Midwest in general, the Rust Belt. And it just mm -hmm. seems that Chicago held on as long as they could. But then you're seeing a lot of people move basically south until you can't get any further south in the continental United States. We, we've seen that here in the Akron area in Cleveland and Detroit where it just people are like, there's nothing left here. So you just, you know, you just keep on going until you reach water. So, uh, 
you know, with the title where you say you're a pissed off native son and what you were talking about, you were mentioning a lot of positives and the culture that Chicago has to offer. You have to you have to find it's there, but also you have to go out and find it. Uh, talk a little bit about your background, about your father and why that this book and why this concept and talking about a city like this means it is so near and dear to you. Because I mean, look, we all have our hometowns. We all love them. It, you know, you take the good with the bad, you know, the people that are lifers, the people who came back and, you know, returned and, you know, wanted to make a new life for themselves. But you're somebody that Chicago means a lot to you and it meant a lot to your father as well. Talk a little bit about your background. Sure. I uh, moved here with my mom and dad in 1964. My dad, late 64. I was like six years old then. My dad uh, was a social psychology professor and he was taking a job at the University of Chicago. So we moved into that neighborhood, Hyde Park, on the south side, uh, always sort of a, a bastion, you know, of uh, integration, intellectuals, culture, uh, very interesting, cool place. Um, and I grew up there. And over the years, you know, I started to get interested in Chicago policy and politics, even at a very early age. Um, I worked on an undercover investigation um, with the Better Government Association and the Chicago Sun-Times. Uh, and uh, we were keeping track of the city inspectors that would shake down small businesses. Uh, electrical, plumbing, and other inspectors were doing this constantly, and there'd been a lot of complaints. So we uh, opened up a tavern called the Mirage Tavern, aptly named and documented what went on. Uh, that got turned into a, uh, a month-long newspaper series. Uh, 60 Minutes came. There was a book written. Uh, I was just really a young schnook along for the ride. I was a summer intern for the chief investigator of the uh, Better Government Association, but it gave me an up-close look at uh, how things work uh, on the seamy side of the city that works. So that was a pretty formative experience. And then there were others uh, working for suburban mayors fighting Chicago City Hall on airport siting and airport expansion. That was a real eye-opener. Which, which airport, O'Hare or Midway? Well, it was, uh, I was working for the mayors in the towns affected by O'Hare Airport. And okay. this was so late like, 80s. So like Schiller Park and some of those areas? Yeah, very much. Uh, Bensonville, Des Plaines, Park Ridge, uh, others. And we were pushing for a new ex-urban airport in a place called Piatone. And it got really interesting when Mayor Daley II uh, proposed building a new airport in the city on the far southeast side on top of 10,000 homes that would have had to have been torn down. And it was all an elaborate Trojan horse uh, so it, you know, it's a tangled thing. You could write a novel about it, but it was uh, uh, a real window into Chicago politics for me and how things really work. Control is a big thing here and control of uh, government contracts. And so, uh, you know, there's a whole section in my book about corruption and rigged rules of governance. There's an elaborate system of rules designed to suppress voter turnout, uh, keep the uh, district mapping highly political so incumbents will always be reelected. I'm sure you're familiar with that that problem uh, mm -hmm. known as gerrymandering. Oh, We've yeah. got, it, got it to the extreme here. 
Uh, we don't have term limits on our aldermen and mayor, but all of this is done, including the very odd scheduling of our local elections. They're held in odd numbered years in the early months of the year. So we get very, very limited turnout. And the people who do show up are the diehards. They're the public employee union members. Um, and that suits uh, the powers that be very well. So we need to change that and hinge our local elections to uh, presidential elections. State law would have to be state law would have to be changed for that. Uh, but all of this is done to uphold the opportunities for corruption, in my opinion. So the tail has been wagging the dog here in Chicago for very many years. And while you've always had, I suppose, some degree of political corruption in places like Detroit and Cleveland and Milwaukee, and I'm going to guess even a little bit in Akron and Columbus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> nobody does it like Chicago does it. And you're right. People sort of take a weary pride in it after a certain point. And, and that's not a good thing. We just kind of say, oh, well, it's the cost of doing business. But meanwhile, um, everything is falling apart. And now the violence thing and frankly, the race thing, the politics of mm -hmm. race, something I call racial essentialism. I don't use the term critical race theory, um, but, you know, racial essentialism, seeing everything through the prism and the lens of race now today in 2021. Uh, is something that happens here and it hurts us when when it comes time to try and solve problems like the young men running amok, killing people, carjacking. Carjacking is just an amazingly horrible crime. I'm sure you've read about carjackings and I'm sure there's some in, in uh, other Midwestern cities. There was one right down the street not long ago at a gross, it's an organic grocery store and it was a carjacking that happened a mile from where I live. And I live in the suburbs of, of the Akron area. And yeah. it's amazing with this crime, the crime and everything that's happening. And I, I, by the way, I want to get to more of that racial essentialism because I think it's a huge topic and it kind of plays into a lot of what has been going on throughout the country. And it really seems to have evolved out of Chicago. But I want to get back to talking about the political angle, because when uh -huh. we've talked about the Chicago style politics, that this has been going on for a century and it's just accepted. I mean, when when it's called the Windy City, it's not just because of the winds off the lake of off Lake Michigan. It's the windbag politicians, and we collectively, as a society, and especially those in, living in you know uh, northeastern Illinois, just accept that hey, this is the political machine. This dates back to uh, William Thompson in the early 1920s. How many Mayor Dailies have there been? How many Dailies have been there in Chicago politics the whole time? And now leads all the way up and i want to get to your article that you just published recently about mcdonald's versus the woke mob where you have lori lightfoot where each day she's violating her own uh social distancing and mask rules and we need to shut down all the salons but but i need to get my hair done though wait wait, wait so you're saying that you're more essential yes i'm more essential because i'm the mayor and you need to be shut down that was going on all last year this is just a it, it, Blagojevich in Illinois, for a, you know, a decade or so ago, and obviously Barack Obama, Rahm Emanuel. These are household names throughout the entire country, and it all is based off of this fairly. I mean, it's a big city, but 
comparatively speaking, you're talking about a small section of America that a lot of this is bled from. Uh, it's true. And I should hasten to add that uh, the Chicago political machine has changed and experts here will tell you, and I think rightly, that the opportunities for so-called patronage hiring, uh, you know, people getting city jobs because they do political work, mm -hmm. supposedly in their off hours, that that has changed and the opportunities for patronage hiring are much, much fewer, and that really is true. However, there are other ways of skinning the cat, and the the greater thrust to me is the complexion of Chicago political corruption has changed. In the old days, it was white guys, right? Well, the Irish, um, the Italians to some extent, but not so much as the Irish, uh, the Polish, the insiders in the old machine it was all white. Now, starting around 1980, 1983, um, people of, of color began to gain political power in, in Chicago. Yeah, because uh, it, it seemed like at one time that if you were a judge and you wanted to run for, for some kind of office, if you put an O with an apostrophe next to your name, you're guaranteed. <laughs> if you're an O with uh, and you're a Democrat, O'Connell, O'Malley, you're going to be a judge. That's what it just seems. And, and it's, it's honestly, that's also like that in the Midwest, throughout the Midwest as well. But go ahead. Sorry about that. Well, no, it's funny you mentioned judges because right now the judges that we have here in the Cook County Circuit Court System are one of the biggest problems of all um, because we have something uh, called bail reform, where basically, uh, it was intended for a first time nonviolent offenders. So bail reform meant that they would get out on low cash or no cash bond, right? If it was a nonviolent offense and you were a first time offender. But our judges, who we do not pay attention to when we elect them, right? We barely look at their records. We don't ask them questions. And they are under guidance from our chief judge, a former Chicago alderman named Tim Evans, to be very lenient on charged criminals. So basically guys who do carjackings uh, or worse shootings or illegal gun possession, which our state's attorney believes is nothing to worry about so long as no bullets were fired. All these types of charged offenders are being let out almost instantly on you know $250 bond or $500 bond. And here's the problem. All too often, they go straight out and commit the same crimes or worse crimes. So, you know, and then there are the plea deals, right? Uh, probation for you, young man. You've uh, been convicted on carjacking, but uh, you're you're only 17 or 18, and we're going to give you probation. And now we have a series of murders, including one back in Hyde Park, the fifth murder in the neighborhood where I grew up this year versus zero last year, we have had about 700 murders citywide this year. But a 24-year-old Chinese graduate student who was looking at a bright, bright future as a data scientist was killed in cold blood last in Hyde Park. Uh, and the thief, it turned out, was on probation. Uh, for carjacking, you know, and this was the second young man this year uh, in Hyde Park who had killed someone while on probation for carjacking. Uh, and 
the thief took the the killer the alleged killer took a cell phone and a laptop computer from denny zhang the victim and he sold them for a hundred dollars and he shot mr zhang into the bargain i guess it's inconvenient to have a witness um the same week an 18 year old uh black man on the south side who was the homecoming king at his charter high school his public charter high school he had worked hard to earn money for a car he was driving it he got carjacked he gave it up he was walking away the carjacker shot him dead in the back he had planned to join the military he was killed on veterans day these are stories that just break your heart their faces and families mothers and fathers sisters and brothers we know this but we forget it the the psychic cost to the violence here and you can interview carjacking victims they haven't been killed but they'll tell you this has changed my life this changes the way i look at chicago forever you have the people who've been stabbed by uh psychotic individuals while merely walking on the street we have random stabbers all over this place and so yeah tony it it goes to a deeper question right mm-hmm. what the heck is causing this you know and uh, and it gets down to when you start talking about who's in charge and who it's beneficial towards and i know uh, a, a figure that you've been talking about is kim fox yeah that's a and that's another one where again another household name for anybody in the country when you're hearing a lot of these stories and and they start focusing on stories that really shouldn't mean much and putting so many resources like I, I the one and you know we could talk a little more about the 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 racial problems that were going on uh and, but one of my and I use this in quotes but one of my favorite stories came out almost 3 years ago with the Jesse Smollett case that uh-huh. You have a prominent uh, actor in who lives in Chicago, who's on a, a big time TV show, who mails himself a ransom note about you know what, whatever the case that because he's gay and he's black, and because it didn't really get much traction, he ends up staging this hoax where he has bleach poured on him and he has a noose around his neck. He's walking around the streets of Chicago. Uh, like by, you know, Wacker Drive at two o'clock in the morning and one of the coldest days of the year as he's getting subway. And he says that two white, redheaded MAGA country people said you're in MAGA country and called him racial slurs. And so and of course, everybody has to jump on it because he it, it fits the criteria, it fits the narrative. He's gay. He's black. Uh, this is Donald Trump's America that this is going on. And, you know, it just really checked all the boxes until of course, it was all 100% fake, and it came out and that they had to sink so many of those resources. But you had Michelle Obama, you had Kamala Harris, and you had Oprah, you had Kim Fox defending Jussie Smollett for these, I'm not Columbo here, but I could figure it out that this was fake. And it just, it just played into the role of, look, it fits this narrative. Whereas at the same time, and a lot of us have been saying this, and it's a trope on the right wing, is that we look and say you're focusing so much on this case that's clearly a, a hoax yet there's babies and there's young kids that are being gunned down in chicago on a nightly basis this should not be happening yet because it's black on black crime 
it doesn't and and the guns were purchased illegal or whatever the case is, whether you want to talk about gun control, anything, it doesn't fit that narrative that they've been wanting to push. So anytime it, it just is a passing news story, it's, a, you know, four dead in Chicago over the weekend. Uh, in other news, uh, the, you know, the Cubs with a two to one victory over the Reds this weekend, it's like we're just going to just blow by that. Yes. Yes. Well, the embarrassment and the reluctance to really go at dysfunction in the family in too many low-income black neighborhoods, the embarrassment and the reluctance stems from this, in my view. We've had now, you know, about 60 years of liberal social programs, right? The whole Great Society thing that got unleashed Uh, And at the time, it felt right, smelled right, made sense. You know, it was in the wake of of the the civil rights movement in the early 60s, uh, the great inspiration of Martin Luther King and others. It was time for our nation to get its head on right about equal opportunity and equal respect for black people. So that was very important. And, you know, we did have systemic racism here, even into the 80s. And I document some of that in my book. And there's a history here going back to some uh, race riots in 1919, where there was just violent, virulent anti-Black sentiment. Of course, the white ethnics were also killing each other in riots. Chicago has been that kind of place. And you had a lot of redlining going on as well. Well, yeah. Um, You know, that one I like to dig in deeper and see what were the real reasons and Mm. and really, really make sure that that one stacks up. But yeah, there's been a lot. And right now, the public schools in black and Latino neighborhoods are totally failing. And the, the politicians in charge who are of color are still not concerned. So now this is a different kind of racism. You have black and Latino people running the whole system here, including our state's attorney, Kim Fox, our chief judge, Timothy Evans, and our mayor, Lori Lightfoot. Also, 32 out of the 50 aldermen on the Chicago City Council are non-white. So the great idea is that people of color could now elect other people of color who would be responsive to their needs, right? Except everything is worse. So this simple idea of, oh, well, black elected officials will solve the problems of black people. uh, Boy, it sure has not turned out that way. And it does circle back to corruption, not saying that all the aldermen are corrupt, although a great many of them uh, are so underneath the radar, they're never caught. And that's always been the case, whether they're white, black, Latino, or Asian. Oh, the color Um, that matters is green here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We're not taking care of business here. So, uh, you know, Kim Fox is a very important thing. But your point was, yeah, the Smollett case was despicable. And mind you, there's an asterisk next to this. He is being retried now. Um, It will happen uh, probably next year. Kim Fox dropped the charges against him, or rather her prosecutors did. Let's be clear. She supposedly recused herself from the case, although that was always suspect. Uh, But a special prosecutor reinstated the charges, so he will still have his day in court. And amazingly to me, 
uh, he's maintaining his innocence. Uh, uh, we'll see about that. But as horrible as this case appears to be, it was the low-hanging fruit, right? The harder thing is, uh, and to your point, we can't talk about what's gone wrong, except it's happening. And so what I did, Tony, when I wrote this book, right, I moved back. And this touches on my relationship to the place and why it's so special to me. You know, I grew up here. I came of age here. I didn't leave until I was 35. My wife and I moved out to Seattle. So here we here we are now, and it's 2020, right? And I'm watching the nation go off, right, after George Floyd heinously killed by Minneapolis, Minneapolis police. And I see Chicago just falling to pieces, 18 people killed in one day on May 31st of 2020. I say, look, I'm coming back. So I move into Bridgeport, the neighborhood from where the two dailies and three other Irish mayors of Chicago came from. I rent a place. I start doing field work deep on the south side. And so when I go down, and talk to black people in their homes and workplaces on the south side of Chicago. During my field work for this book, I hear things that you do not hear from BLM and that you do not hear in the mainstream nope. media. And, and this won't surprise you when it, other people know this too. There has always been a strong strand of what some people would call conservative values in African-American communities across the whole country, rural and urban. And so this is what I'm hearing last year down on the South side. I'm hearing we need mothers and fathers to, to be married and stay together and to be involved with their children. Um, we need people to have basic financial understanding of things and, and uh, to invest and save and start businesses. And so I talked to people who shared their success stories with me. And many of them were coming from, you know, a very difficult place earlier in their lives. I talked to ex-convicts who got out and got on the right path, um, you know, mothers and fathers who were now together, but had had uh, children at an early age without being married. Um, so there's a lot of success stories. And what I learned is, we can wait for government to get its act together. And it is important to have a policy playbook, right? Like, here's what we need to do around school choice. Here's what we need to do around public employee pension debt that's skyrocketing insanely in places like Chicago and the state of Illinois and other cities and states. But in the end, too, it's like household by household. That's one of the things I learned. Uh, there's a great deal of power in that, right? Well, and, and 2020 is, you know, we talk about this new normal, which I, I, I hate that term because I, it's definitely rooted out of communism and socialism. But it's, mm -hmm. it's one of these cases where when you talk about where we're going forward and how we can get back to some kind of semblance of normalcy. And what we saw in 2020, not just because of the pandemic, but also because of the riots that were cheered on in the mainstream media, in my opinion. I mean, you're, you're seeing it right now as we record this, the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, trial is going on right now. And I don't even know if a lot of black Americans are, are really that invested in that case. It seems like it's more of the white Antifa uh, you know, kind of 
groups that really want to riot because they feel that this is white privilege and all, you know, what it, go through the whole tropes of social justice warriors. Um, but what was going on was, as a lot of these communities were getting burned down, they weren't, they were going to the Macy's, they were going to some of the nice places, the Neiman Marcus and, you know, smash and grabs in a lot of places. But a lot of these areas that were looted and rioted were poor immigrant owned or black and Latino owned businesses. So what suffers when the mob moves away to their next? So instead of Chicago, they're going up to Kenosha. They're going up to Minneapolis. They're going some someplace else. Who's left to clean that up? And it decimated a lot of communities. Then at the same time, you have this virus that's out there and God forbid we have kids in school. So what happens? We send kids in virtual school. Well, the truancy rates with school and a lot of these kids were just, especially in communities where kids are just, they're D students, they're barely hanging on. Now you send them home with distractions of video games and anything else at home. Mom has to work. There is no dad. Then you just, so the kid's like, I'm not going to show up for school. Why am I going to do this? So who is this hurting? And when you realize that when we're talking about this racial essentialism, in reality, or critical race theory and all these other theorems that we've been hearing about, who is it actually hurting? It's the inner city minority communities that are getting most affected by this. And it's really sad. And and the story of places like Chicago and Cleveland and Minneapolis is who has suffered the worst? Is it the, you know, the upper middle class white person who got to work from home and hasn't missed a paycheck? Or is it the, you know, the, the minority owned business owners uh, that uh, look around and go, yeah, my, I, I had no insurance here, or I had very little and the government's not getting me any. I have to close down. I don't know what to do with my life. Or, hey, my kid is, uh, my kid's on the streets. He's a gangbanger right now because he's not in school because they're not allowed to be in school. This is a, it was a definite turning point, And you were right in the middle of it in 2020 in Chicago. You make a bunch of really excellent points there, Tony. And I want to tie a few of them together from the perspective of, uh, what I saw here in Chicago last year and, and this year. Uh, racial essentialism has to do especially with making excuses. Our mayor in Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, explains you know, higher murder rates in the black community. Uh, our Chicago schools explain lower performance by black students, always as a result of systemic racism. Uh, sometimes they throw in uh, community uh, disinvestment is due to systemic racism. Uh, what racial essentialism is, uh, apart from being racist, is um, it's a way of lowering expectations. And it is racist because it says black people can't measure up, we can't expect them to. In uh, this way, white people are offloading their white guilt, right? And this is why you can't talk about absent black fathers. You can't mention what the city of Chicago published in an 11 year study, which was that um, four out of every five children born to a black woman in Chicago, it's a single mother. Amazing, 50% for Hispanics, 10 to 13% each for whites and and, Lat and uh, Asians, and this was over an 11 year period. And they mapped it out by neighborhood too, and where births to single mothers are the highest, Tony, in Chicago, are the exact same neighborhoods where gang warfare and murders 
are the highest. I mean, talk about a correlation. Um, when the schools were shut down to in-person instruction, we had that same thing here that all, all other school districts had remote learning. The attendance was miserable. And what they do in Chicago always is to cook the numbers. So the, the, the school district trumpeted uh, a report where they found that 70% of students logged in to this or that Google platform at least twice a week. First of all, logging in doesn't mean you're learning, and there was no measure of how long the logins were for. Um, the real data here are the nation's report card, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, and I urge all reporters, media, and concerned citizens to look up the NAEP data for your local school district. They measure fourth graders and eighth graders every two years on basic proficiency in reading and math. And to me, here's a news bulletin. In all of these Midwestern cities and most cities around the country, you've got one quarter to one third only of your fourth graders and eighth graders who are testing at proficient or higher uh, on the National Assessment of Educational Progress. Well, that means three quarters to two thirds are not even proficient in those core subjects. And again, the racial excuse making comes in. In my book, I talk about uh, some of the online materials of the Chicago Public Schools. They've got a whole equity toolkit online and the biggest piece of it is a video by a man named Glenn Singleton, a well-known consultant, Courageous Conversations about race. The video is called Whiteness. Mm. And what we learn is that the big problem in Chicago public schools is this insidious thing called whiteness. And I actually did some research on this. It turns out even in one of the Smithsonian's member museums last year, there was a detailed exhibit. It was the African-American Museum of History, the National African-American Museum of History, a detailed exhibit that said, you know, writing is a white thing. Planning for the future, that's a white thing. It was amazing to me. And, you know, people don't even want to believe that. Uh, That's that so term it, equity. Because, yeah. Because when we talk about equality, if you want true equality, equality, is it equality of outcome or equality of opportunity? So then when you start saying it's equality of outcome, that's where this term equity and you realize that, you know, some jobs and you know, are it's it's going to be a little bit different. You're going to have a desperate, des desperate outcome. And it, it uh, that's where equity starts popping up. And, it, you know, by the way, you were talking about it, it reminded me there was a tweet that was back uh, about a year ago when there was talk about reopening schools. Now, in suburban areas and charter schools and private and parochial schools, they reopen. They say, OK, maybe we'll have a mask mandate for the students or maybe we'll go back three days a week and hybrid learning. But we want to get the kids back in school, uh, especially because kids are not as big of a threat with COVID as somebody who is elderly or infirmed or obese. And there was a tweet that came out a year ago in December that said that reopening Chicago schools, this is from the Chicago Teachers Union. You probably remember this. 
the Chicago Teachers Union said that reopening the schools is rooted in racism, sexism, and misogyny. Yes. Riddle I, I, me that. What does that have anything to do with anything? <laughs> this is typical of what we get from the Chicago Teachers Union. They are race and class warriors, and they're on a mad monopolistic power quest to, you know, uh, limit school choice and limit accountability. Um, when the windows were being smashed on Michigan Avenue in Chicago last August, and they had to raise the bridges over the Chicago River, which was a stunning and sad image to me as a longtime Chicagoan. It was an admission that they couldn't control what was going on. Uh, the day after that, a spokesperson for the Chicago branch of Black Lives Matter said, uh, and this is amply documented, and I footnoted in my book, said essentially, um, hey, what are you going to do if people need to put food on the table? Looting is okay. Uh, also, nationwide, I'm sure you heard this and remember this, uh, the line from BLM and Antifa was, eh, don't get bent out of shape over windows being smashed and stores being looted. Uh, they have insurance. People People, they said, people matter, property doesn't matter. Now you mentioned uh, the impact on black merchants and that you were right to do that. I wanna share something with you. All over Chicago and doubtless other towns around the nation, there were signs in the windows of shops and businesses that said black owned. I wanna tell you something, Tony, those signs did not help in Chicago. In the book, I document that um, uh, a major nonprofit here called uh, My Block, My Street, My Hood, uh, uh, a Black-run nonprofit, raised about a million dollars for businesses that were pillaged, basically looted, broken, and smashed during the riots. Most of the money they passed out uh, was to Black-owned businesses. And this does go to equity. And you're absolutely right to harp on equity. There's this idea, you know, racial equity, right? Social equity. Well, what is equity anyway? And I firmly insist equity is an investment. Now, it doesn't mean you have to be invested in a property or a business. But I say it does mean you have to be invested in planning your life. You have to be invested in your future. Um, and you can't pass out equity. It's not a door prize, right? You got to sweat for equity. And that's what, you know, that's what so many ancestors did, including so many of the black people who moved here in the 1920s from the South, who moved up north. And, you know, there have been thriving, thriving black businesses and black banks in the 60s and 70s. I went to school in Hyde Park with the children of the black middle class and the black upper class. I mean, uh, there are probably five or six black kids I remember from my high school who are doctors now, you know, and that was never something that their parents told them was out of reach. But up here in Evanston, drawing a contrast, uh, 
a black mother actually of Congolese and African-American descent reached out to a, a liberal progressive magazine called The Atlantic mm-hmm. because she was so appalled at what happened to her 14-year-old son. He, uh, They moved back here from Toronto. She had been raised here in Evanston. Her kids are in the Evanston public schools. Evanston, by the way, is where I'm speaking to you from now. I went to school here for a little while at Northwestern, staying in a friend's house. Her kids were told her son wanted to be a lawyer, 14-year-old black kid, very interested in being a lawyer. He was told in the Evanston Public Schools, sorry, you can't do that. Systemic racism will make it impossible for you, a black a black kid to become a lawyer. He came home and told his mother about that. His younger sister was experiencing a similar rhetoric around, you know, uh, systemic white oppression. They both came to their mother and they said, what is this? Well, she went in to talk to the teachers and she was told, basically, this is how we roll here, okay? This is part of our program, and it's not going to change. It's the curriculum, Um, and that's where when we've been talking for the last several months to almost a year about critical race theory. Critical race theory is is based out of, and you know this as well as anybody, this is based out of college. I mean, this is theorem from college law school and how it's applied. But how does it trickle down into elementary, middle, and high schools? And And I kept telling people, don't get hung up on the term critical race theory because exactly. they're going to use the semantics by saying, no, 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 we don't teach critical race theory here. Well, yeah, capital letters you may not, but it is being taught in different schools. And that uh, that racial essentialism, like you said, and hierarchies that kids, kids don't even know reading, writing, and arithmetic anymore, but they know what pronouns they are and they know what hierarchies and hegemonies and all this other... A 10-year-old shouldn't know any of this. Hooked on phonics is what I learned and what you learned. That's what it was. And uh, we're doing such a disservice. And this is where you start talking about how the public school system, and and, because this is where it really branches out. It's not just the colleges. It starts in the schools. Well, first it starts at home, but then it starts into the schools. Now the school systems, and this is my opinion, uh, but I have enough evidence to back this up, it seems like a lot of these school districts look at your children as government property, that they're not yours. So therefore, whatever they learn at home, it doesn't matter. They need to learn at school based on all. So then that's where, like you brought up that example, that they come home and say, I want to be a lawyer, but teacher said I can't be one because I'm black, which is, of course, racist. I mean, that is true racism right there. And you, you so how does this change? How does... So, okay, so maybe in rural Illinois that you can, or in even suburban parts of outside of, uh, you know, Springfield or outside of, uh, you know, even Chicago and different areas, I'm sure that there are very good school systems and school districts, but in major cities like Chicago, and I see it here in Akron and Cleveland and New York, these public schools are just continuing to fail. And like I said, with what they were learning or not learning, in the times that they had to do virtual learning, a lot of these parents looked over their shoulder and said, this is what you're learning? I'm taking you out of this school. I'm taking, I'm putting you in a, a, a Catholic school. I'm putting you in a private uh, charter school or we're homeschooling. 
And what happens is because of that, it's now making the public school system even worse now. So where do we go from here? Solutions are very important in education. Uh, and I, I want to clarify the charter schools we have in Chicago and around the country, they're run by private operators, but they are public charter schools, right? They, and they are getting, so they're part of the solution. And we do have about 130 charter schools in Illinois. More than 100 of them are in Chicago. They're part of the solution. And there have been evaluations done by researchers at the University of Chicago. When it comes to lower income students of color, charter schools are doing a dramatically better job. So I believe that's part of it. Sadly, Tony, that same teachers union that is so uh, unhinged in its rhetoric is also very politically powerful. And they've convinced Mayor Lightfoot like Mayor Emanuel before her to agree on a cap, a numerical cap on the number of charter schools that needs to be rescinded. It's uh, part of a, a, an agreement that <clears throat> comes with the collective bargaining deal. And uh, until 2023, we're going to have a growth cap on more charter schools in Chicago, which is the same, which is a shame because Overall enrollment has been going down sharply for 10 years in the system. The only place it's been rising is in charter schools. Um, private religious schools, you're absolutely on target. And again, a bit of good news. Here in this state, we have something that you might call vouchers light, right? Education vouchers are the best thing of all, uh, perhaps, but uh, We've got something where it's a 75% state income tax credit. If you or I, let's say we both live in Illinois, were to give uh, $1,000 to this special program called Invest in Kids, you would get a tax credit of $750 uh, on your state income tax taxable amount. And that money goes to a scholarship granting organization, which turns around and shovels the money out to worthy applicants. Uh, and so poor minority kids can now afford private school tuition. Uh, that's kind of a biggie. There was also something called micro schools that popped up uh, during COVID. Essentially, students who went to public charter schools, if their parents couldn't be home to supervise online learning, uh, they would go to like these pod like locations, five or six kids and the school district would pay for an instructor to come from an outside private education company to guide their online learning, connect them with their teachers, make sure that everybody was hitting the mark. Uh, and then homeschooling is growing exponentially. As you know, one of the families I interviewed uh, on the South Side, uh, a black Christian homeschooling mother, who began her life at age 17 working in a Burger King with a one-year-old baby. And within four years, uh, she was running her own real estate company. And she met a good guy in church and they had four kids. And uh, Latasha Fields, very inspiring story. So there's all kinds of ingenuity and all kinds of solutions in education. Uh, economic development is a whole nother area. There are success stories there too. And I get to some of them in my book. That, that was the next thing I wanted to kind of cover as we start to wind down with this uh, this podcast is because we covered the crime, we covered the politics, we've covered the 
uh, the race hustling that was that's been going on. We covered education. The big thing is manufacturing, and when you think of the Rust Belt, and a lot a lot of cities had been hit really hard, and some some worse than others. Uh, nearby Gary, Indiana, was pretty bad. Um, uh, Toledo, Ohio, is really bad. Flint, Michigan, obviously well documented, and Detroit, and that whole area. Chicago kind of was like. It was an anomaly. It was just this bright spot in this just decaying, decrepit area of the Midwest that that had been going on. But even now, when you have high taxes, when you're dealing with uh, corrupt politicians and what's in it for them, you're dealing with union uh, strongholds and everything. And manufacturing in a lot of these places said, you know what? We're moving to Mexico. We're moving to Texas. We're moving to Florida. Can't take it anymore. And so what happens with that? Jobs go there, too. So then what happens after that? The the population decreases. So as far as manufacturing in Chicago goes, I mean, that was one of the reasons a lot of people were sticking around in, for example, Detroit because of the the car ban. It, It was almost like Detroit didn't think that any place on earth can make a car. And then all of a sudden, you had a lot of the the, the race riots that were happening in the 1960s and uh, uh, the white flight that was happening. And Chicago experienced that, too. Now the white flight is not even, not even going back to the city. They're not even going back to some suburbs. And it seems like they're just heading back, heading to greener and sunnier pastures. So what is it going to take at this point to, I guess, bring people back to Chicago other than just tourism? Well, let me quickly cover off on crime. Uh, solutions include a lot more foot patrols. The cops are just driving around in their cars. And that's part of the reason, along with high taxes and lousy schools that people leave, and along with lack of ec- economic opportunity, um, we need more foot patrols. We do need substantive uh, improvements in police accountability. We need to rebuild trust between black communities and the police. But on manufacturing, on job skills, uh, we're looking at a real challenge here. And, um, you know, manufacturing is not coming back. That was the thing that drew so many immigrants from the South in what's called the great migration of blacks to to the North, Detroit, Akron, Chicago, other places, you know, steel, auto industry here were huge. Uh, the the meatpacking industry, the stockyards, the famous Chicago stockyards, um, basically all gone now or nearly gone. Um, so you look at the skills that are needed in the economy today. Well, you know, you don't have to be a coder or a drone panel operator. You might be a home health care worker, right? But I think we need to integrate uh, training in, in various trades we need to integrate it better into our K through 12 education and our community colleges. There's actually a lot out there already on the menu accessible to you. If you live in greater Chicagoland, there are community colleges doing a good job at providing the programs that prepare people for good careers. Um, It's partly just getting to the point where you're ready to take advantage of the opportunity And that in many ways does go back to that one household at a time uh, uh, reform. But the thing is, economic disruptions have always occurred. I was told recently by a good friend of mine, and I have a lot of progressive friends, Tony, that's kind of how I roll. I like to bounce my ideas off them. Um, You know, we have friendly arguments a lot of the time. I was told you can't expect even 
parents to hold their kids accountable on their behavior when the economic hardship is so great. And that's what we heard from that uh, spokesperson for Black Lives Matter after the riots last August. Hey, if people need to loot to put food on the table, then let them do it. Um, you know, I just think we, we, we have to really have higher expectations around that. And um, I, I guess we need more positive role models. So in the end, I think we need to shine a light on the success stories. I mean, I interviewed a guy, a black guy who did three years for involuntary manslaughter. Well, he's 51 now. He owns 10 residential properties and he's hustled all his life. And he actually talked about his grandfather and father. His grandfather came here from the Mississippi Delta, from Clarksdale, and uh, worked in uh, the steel mills, but he repaired boilers at night and put his money in an annuity and started buying residential properties for cash way back in the day. His father worked in a meatpacking plant and did the same. Um, you know, there's... Uh, a job training program for black female electricians that's being run out of a nonprofit uh, on the South side and a pastor in a parish who are coming together around that kind of thing. So um, there are seeds, you know, glimmerings, flickering of hope all over the place. But I think we need our political leaders to step up and combine uh, two calls at the same time. One call is for parents to stay together and do a better job raising their kids, including orienting them toward a future of work, legitimate work. And the other thing really is uh, that at the same time, parents have to model that behavior, you know? So people fall into a life here. I had a woman who lives on the South side in Englewood explain it to me. Kids grow up, um, dad's not around, there's a boyfriend. Kid sees a pipe in an ashtray, right? He's 10 years old. He starts token up before he goes to class. Soon he's selling on the street. He's selling for the boyfriend. Before you know it, he's in juvie. Then he's in the county jail. Then he graduates to what's actually called college on the street, which is yep. the state pen state penitentiary. There's there's a reveal for you. Um, well, and, and, and it's kind of like you mentioned about the it's broken windows policing is what yeah. happened in New York with Rudy Giuliani. The reason crime went down was, oh, you know, oh, you jumped a turnstile. Yeah, okay, so you could either look at it and say, oh, it's just a turnstile, it's $2, it's no big deal. But then that starts adding up. Then you have another person who jumps, and then you continue doing it, and you say, well, what else can I get away with? But if you prosecute that immediately and try to put somebody on the straight and narrow, I'm not saying that you hustle them and you rough them up and, and there's uh, police brutality, but this is where if it's not going on at home, there needs to be better role models in any community. It doesn't even have to be black or Hispanic community. It's in white communities too. I see it a lot where you get a lot of the suburban kids that do go to the inner city looking for trouble. And mm -hmm. it's just poor role, role models. And like you said about what the education system is that not every kid is bound for college. I say that as somebody that I went to community college for a little bit and I dropped out. I got into radio and I've been in radio for 15 years. I'm 33 years old and I started when I was 18. I, I mean, I guess it's a success in some ways. Uh, if you look at my paycheck, some people may disagree, but it, that's the life I chose and that I was able to make something of myself in that way. 
And, and sometimes you need somebody to kind of lead you to these trade schools where you say, okay, maybe you're not going to get a four-year bachelor's degree and go on to become a, a doctor or a lawyer or something. But hey, you know, they're, with the way auto mechanics are nowadays, it's not just being under the car being a grease monkey. It's being, you got to know technology and, there's, and, and learning about the chips in cars. That There's a lot of opportunities right now. And I think in a lot of more urban communities, and I see this here where I am in Northeast Ohio, is that they're starting to kind of figure that out because after telling two generations of students, including my generation, that it doesn't matter what you get, it, it doesn't matter where you apply, just go to college and get your degree. Well, okay, now you're 22, 23, 24 with a degree and you're working at Applebee's because you have no skills. And right. so how do you cultivate those skills? So now you're finding out a lot of these kids and you see it in Chicago public schools where they have these career academies that you have somebody who's making 60, 80 grand right out of high school, whereas their classmate who may have done better in school and got straight A's is, you know, working at Waffle House trying to uh, make waffles and pour coffee just to make ends meet because they're trying to get this degree. So it should be celebrated. And that is one of the bright spots I've seen in recent years, as long as we can keep that trend going in inner city schools. There's a nexus, too, uh, between academic skills and trade skills. Um, you need at least a second year uh college reading level to be an auto mechanic now yeah you're right it's the chips it's the technology it's also the manuals and instruction guides you've got to be able to read it's not light reading at all um, and, and same with police officers my, my father and my grandfather were cleveland police officers for hmm. for several decades and it's not just, oh, how many pull-ups can you do on the pull-up bar? It's, oh, do you have a degree? Do you have a background in criminal justice? So there, there is an education angle, but there also has to be that street smarts angle in trying to cultivate those skills. Something I noticed around economic development challenges in Chicago was that there were a lot of formerly thriving neighborhood downtowns that are not thriving anymore, particularly in African-American communities. Our mayor has a program uh, to try and revitalize 10 or 12 of those neighborhood downtowns, um, but it's really just been meetings and planning and materials posted to the web. Private investment is still key. And um, I noticed something interesting, you know, Tony, I walked the streets of Chicago a great deal growing up and for this book on the South Side. And I've heard black people talk almost wistfully about that time before white flight had fully completed its course. That time back in the early 70s, when some of these communities were really, for a time at least, kind of integrated. And Chicago was a very segregated city probably the most segregated of all. And I feel like that it probably has been harmful to the city over the last 50 years. Um, but black people remember wistfully when certain neighborhoods were integrated and there were department stores and two grocery stores and you know all kinds of things right there in your neighborhood downtown. And that stuff just isn't there anymore. So there's got to be a way to bring back some of these neighborhood downtowns. 
but it cannot be separated from what you call the human capital of the neighborhood. And again, it's such an uncomfortable conversation for so many people, but um, it, it really starts in the household, right? If crime is out of control in say Roseland down on the Southeast side, um, once a thriving neighborhood downtown, uh, if crime is out of control, well, it's broken windows. Like you say, there's fly dumping at night. There are fires. There are vacant stores. Nobody is fixing them. The place looks like Aleppo, Syria after a bombing raid. And right next door over in Pullman, where they used to build, you know, railroad sleeper cars and trolley cars at the great big factory that George Pullman founded in the late 1800s. There's a community that was really going down the tubes and has uh, now benefits from a great economic revitalization program where all kinds of tax incentives were brought to bear and they reclaimed land from an old steel mill that had gone defunct. Now there's an Amazon distribution center, a Whole Foods distribution center, um, uh, a Walmart, which took a lot of bargaining with the community um and uh you know a huge new rec center paid for partly by corporate sponsors uh and the community has come alive there's one other thing going on in pullman i think it's very important to mention minority economic opportunity micro lending micro lending is huge you got a program down there run by the chicago neighborhoods initiative they've shoveled out about three million dollars in the last couple of years mostly to um, African-American ex-convicts who are starting delivery services. And so the Amazon economy is a huge thing, right? So you've got guys working long hours. They get a $20,000 loan for a Sprinter delivery van. And uh, uh, they go out and, yeah, the hours are very, very long. Maybe they even have to pee in a bottle, you know, but they're making 60, 80, 100K a year. If they put in the hours, very often they come back for another round of loans because they got a friend who's heard about their economic success and wants to do the same. So um, there are all kinds of opportunities out there. You just have to sort of put your mind to it. And that's not something that people want to hear because we want to talk instead about structural racism, institutional racism and equity. Uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. All, the all of that now. The thing is, though, a lot of the onus, some of the onus really does fall upon elected officials, right? If the schools are not working and if our black mayor is going to agree to a cap on charter schools, which minority families are voting for with their feet en masse, you know, it does go back partly to political leadership. And the question that I keep getting is how is it that the people of Chicago keep electing the same type of elected officials who keep making the same wrong decisions? And I don't have an answer to that. I don't propose that we try and revitalize the Republican Party. And technically, our elections are nonpartisan. But of course, all the office holders are either Democrats or now we have six socialists on ah. Chicago City Council, up from one before the 2019 elections. 
So, you know, that's the direction things are going in. It's kind of like that scene in Blues Brothers where it says, oh, what kind of music do you play here? Oh, we play both kinds, country and Western. So it's like, <laughs> it's like oh, we're, we're Democrats and socialists. Oh, okay. Well, that's a, boy, you got quite a variety here. Yeah. So I say, I say, and we need some money people behind this. It's time for a rebranding uh and a new party, something called the Chicago Reform Party. But to make that work, there's got to be extensive uh, voter registration and outreach to uh, to Latino communities and Black and Asian. And it's important to note the census data. Um, black and white population have dropped by one third each in the last 40 years, right? Uh, Latino population has grown explosively in Chicago, Asians uh, quite substantially as well. The Latino population of Chicago is an interesting case study. Basically, they come here and they work very hard and they don't insert themselves into the racial grievance apparatus that is attendant to our politics here. Well, um, as, as we as we wrap this uh, podcast up, and I really appreciate uh, all this time, Matt. This has been fantastic. Uh, I guess continuing what you were talking about is, uh, I mean, the name of your book is "What's Next, Chicago." I guess in your mind, I mean, it's I hate to put you on the spot of being like a uh, having a crystal ball, but does uh, you know we, we use these terms online out of the matrix where you talk about the red pill or the blue pill, but then there's a term called the white pill and the black pill. And the, the black pill is everything is going to hell. Uh, there's no hope for anything. This is just a waste of time. The white pill is, hey, wait a second. There are, are glimpses and opportunities where we can kind of overcome this. And that though we may have some tough times right now, I do see a future here. And for, for a town like Chicago that, okay, maybe there are some small towns in America that just got decimated in the 1960s, 70s, industry goes away and Maybe the highway system just uh, just kind of ruined the community and rerouted everything. But a town like Chicago can bounce back. And I've heard this about New York City, is that will New York bounce back? They have vaccine mandates and passports and everything. And is Broadway coming back? Is um, the Wall Street coming back and entertainment and the food industry? And you talk to some people like Jerry Seinfeld says, New York will be back. A lot of people say, New York's dead right now. New York is dead, and I don't know if it's ever going to return. So I'll ask you, as a native, a pissed-off native Chicago son, is Chicago on its way back? Can it come back? Or in your mind, do you think that, that, that we're going to continue with the politics, we're going to continue with the racial essentialism that's just really hurt, hurting the city? And is this going to become another one of those cases where Chicago in 10, 20, maybe even 50 years turns into a Detroit? Chicago's got a chance. It's got a fighting chance. Right now, the odds don't look that good. But it is two cities or three cities at once. And I don't like that this is true. There's a white Chicago, a black Chicago, and a Latino Chicago. It's um, possible to find hope in black Chicago. And I made that my mission, and it's there. It's harder to find. It's easier to find it in Latino and white Chicago. Um, but, you know, I was in New York City for a week uh, with my wife this fall. Um, for all its problems, it's got a great deal of vibrance. Um, Chicago right now has some of that, 
but you know when shootings have gone up 200 percent over 2019 in your downtown when sexual assaults and carjackings are up sharply in your downtown uh, when the violence is spreading to formerly safe neighborhoods like hyde park and the university of chicago and others the places where the hipsters live when the hipsters start to worry about carjackings you've got a problem so the city will never die but there is every possibility sadly that chicago could eventually turn into a detroit and that should scare all of us uh people have choices now so jacksonville florida right uh dallas fort worth phoenix um other places there's there's just an awful lot of options out there and people are exercising their right to choose so I think the northern cities, the old line cities, they've still got a fighting chance, but they got to get smart. So they have to innovate. They have to innovate in public policy. They have to innovate in economic development. And when I say innovate in public policy, that includes innovating on on messaging. And part of the innovation is going back to old fashioned stuff, right? The stuff your grandma told you, right, about how you raise children. Uh, about how a community thrives or how a community dies. So the innovation is is in in part a return to the past. And that is going to be the toughest pill for a lot of people to swallow. What's next, Chicago? Notes of a pissed off native son by Matt Rosenberg. And uh, this has been fantastic, Matt. I, I really appreciate it. Where can we go to get more information on the book, more information about you if they want to follow you and some of your work? Where can we find that? You bet. Um, the book is available both at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com, online only. So go to either of those major bookstore sites online and enter What Next Chicago. Um, you can also go to my website uh, to buy the book. And for long form essays and more writing about Chicago, it's called Chicago Schooled.com, and that's schooled with a K. You can also find me on Twitter under Chicago Schooled. Again, Schooled with a K.